0: Hello, um, so, mute. in terms of noise, once i finish eating these noodles. Are you I eating really. noodles? We couldn't tell. Mm. I'm doing um, it very subtly. Yeah, it's hard to tell you're eating at all. But there's also a lot of drilling happening in my house, which is going to provide fascinating podcast sound background. So I hope you're, you're all looking there's forward to that. got a coat on? got my coat on. The heating's not been on for months. I'm freezing. Oh Rory looks like, looks like he's either back from or about to
1: take on the Three Peaks Challenge. <laughs> yes. Steve, yes. I think you know me well enough to know that I would not be doing the Three Peaks Challenge. Well, maybe Hector would like to do it, though, judging by the, the no way, way he drags you over the dales. It all... me... There it is. There it is. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. What's it the
0: furthest
2: ha- you've ever walked with your dog?
0: Oh, Hector doesn't like anything over 10 miles. How does
2: he know it's 10 miles or not? Because his, his back left leg stops working. Were yeah. you <laughs> <Back laughs> not with us the, the other week? other week? was hopping. he was bragging about how far he walks the other week. He
1: mm-hmm. even, even showed us his Fitbit.
0: Oh, not fit yeah. or not Pay it for it. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not a moron. I just use my phone like a normal person. Oh well, that's not accurate. No, it's the, it's a guideline, Stephen.
3: It is. Um, it, it is also. Maury is giving the impression that he's one of those people on an intrepid uh, uh, exploration, but it's being filmed. So every so often, he does like a video diary in the middle of his tent when it's like uh, minus fifty outside. Except it's, it's, it's got, a, my
2: my my tent has just
0: got underlay down.
3: There's no actual carpet.
2: So you're not like bear grills. You're more like squirrel grills, that type I mean, of thing. Really, I'm more like, lower like, level grills.
3: To be honest, I'm more like mixed grills. <laughs> 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 um, you know how uh, we have we have a scripted scripted um, preamble today, um, which will become very naturally segued into now. Uh, you know how successful podcasts charge a huge amount of money to have a pre-show ad read out because it's the point at which people are paying like loads of attention. And also aren't commercially fatigued enough to fast forward through it.
0: That happens to me on Business Wars.
3: Well, there we go. We're going to do one of them today involving all four of us instead of involving okay. just me as it was last week. It's, uh, it's also about us, so people should absolutely not fast forward through it. Um, we are celebrating five years of Set Piece Menu with a live show in London. Uh, it's on Thursday, the 16th of December, which I know uh, the Chinch is writing down. He may well be writing down that date for the first time. So Lon- is London, you say? London, London, okay. Thursday, the 16th of December. It will be exactly okay. one week into our sixth year. It is at the Courtyard Theatre in Shoreditch. I've had a ticket update uh, just today. Um, we need to sell more. Mm. Um, mm, head, imagine, to, head, yeah. head to, and this is how you do it, call to action, everybody. Head to myticket.co.uk and search for Setpiece menu or follow the links pinned to the top of our social feeds. Our tickets are £22.50 plus booking fee. It's called London Waiting, everybody. Stop complaining. And we will be there in the Courtyard Theatre in Shoreditch, recording a live show and more. The more will be recorded, but some of it will likely never be aired because Chinch has already told us it will contain swears. Um, Mm. So you will have to, to experience that stuff, you will have to be there in person with us at the Courtyard Theatre on Thursday, the 16th of December. Also, the other thing I should say about the fact that uh, Chinch will be swearing. My mother has heard the particularly salacious, not safe for work, Neville Southall stories twice now. And considering (laughs) she's intending to come to this one, um, I suggest that they will not be a part of the show because the third might lead to to some sort of coronary. Um, So join us for a fifth anniversary spectacular. The spectacular parts are both TBD and indeed not guaranteed. SPM Live in London is on Thursday, the 16th of December at the Courtyard Theatre in Shoreditch. Doors are at 7pm, everyone. Start
2: day 16th December. Shall I have my colonoscopy <laughs> before
3: or after the 16th? Probably after, probably
2: after. Oh, sorry, did you hear any of that? <laughs> after, a, please. After. A rare example of both being
3: there and being square. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> At myticket.co.uk, search for set piece menu. And also, just as a sidebar, um, email us any food ideas that you might have, as long as they satisfy the three requirements of mass catering, free, and subject to venue policy. That may leave nothing. MyTicket.co.uk to book your place to be alongside us in that there London for SBM's fifth anniversary show. Now, how much do we pay ourselves for this lucrative advertising spot? I have no idea. Uh, It's about the food. Do you think we could find a foodstuff that none of us have ever eaten? I'm I'm absolutely convinced that uh, we'll be able to find that. If anybody's able to provide that.
2: I'm not going to go down that I'm a celebrity route. I'm not eating a ghoulie well no, no i'm not i'm definitely not eating a ghoulie but there must be a food there must be that we've all all not had
1: well apparently about the only benefits to living in london these days is that they get the latest food fad a few months before the rest of the country <laughs> so we just need to discover what that is mm. what, what they've got that manchester
0: will be getting at the start of the new year <laughs> and that can be our food it doesn't quite well like that steve it's that they have the food fad in greater variety so so London have like 40 Greenlandic shark places, whereas only one good one opens in Manchester. That's the, that's the rule. And then Leeds looks at all of that, sneers because it doesn't have Michelin stars and (laughs) pretends it's not bothered. (laughs) That's That's how that works. That's, that is the North. That is how the North, the north. the dynamic. Yeah.
3: I get the impression that if somebody were to bring the kind of food stuff that they would describe, that it's very nature was the fact that we'd never tried it before and then offered it up, offered it up to us, sight unseen, during the tail end of a pandemic, there would be just a few people who would po- perhaps say politely, not for me, thanks. Do you want me to do a tray bake? Well <laughs> <laughs> We're giving it, we're giving you roughly six weeks' notice, is that enough?
0: I could probably do a tray bake. That's in parking or something.
3: Could so you deal with jelly deals? Any any no. of you eating
2: jelly deals?
0: No, and I refuse to.
2: I have not. Why? Why would you refuse? I'm scared of eels. No, but they're dead and chopped up.
0: <laughs> still scary. They're
2: not, not going to get you, are they? If any animal could
0: come back as a ghost, it's an eel. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so any ideas? Um, and, and bear in mind that, yes, we, we might be handing them out to other humans who will be sanitised to within an inch of their life, but still bear that in mind, to at gmail.com. And this is Set Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food, or as it will be uh, today, talking food over a bit of football, it would uh, apparently be. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, live in Manchester. Rory Smith, live in London, and Andy Hinchcliffe, live in the heartland. Live in the heartland? A Bruce Springsteen reference. It's it's one of his most famous live albums. I googled it and everything to make you feel good. Oh,
2: that worked, didn't it? Yeah. That really landed. Never heard of it. Call myself a fan as well
0: which heartland within he's referring
3: to well the only heartland that bruce springsteen constantly re- refers to and sings about in his entire season yeah, there's 5 trouble 5 in the heartland
2: he uses that uses the uses the word heartland he's having a trouble in the heartland but i've never heard it's a live album i take it yes, yes it's so live I, in the heartland yes. alive, live in the heartland
3: never heard of it i'm glad i'm glad it needed the explaining this podcast Thank will you. be released on the day before our Manchester live show. Head to nationalfootballmuseum.com for details and the last few remaining tickets. Yes, we're trying to sell two at once. This is really spreading ourselves a little too thinly. Uh, for all those heading to the museum for SPM 250, we will see you there. Is it fair to
0: say that the fate of the podcast rests upon our attendances in these two live gigs? That if, if we sell a disappointing number of tickets, do we just think right, people aren't interested anymore? Let's bin it.
3: Yes, I think that would be completely yeah. fair. If, okay, we, okay. if we don't reach that threshold, uh, we will not refund anybody and we will also not turn up.
0: This, no, guilty. we'll do the we'll do the shows, obviously, because we're contractually obliged. But I'm just thinking that if we sell if say there's like fifteen people in Manchester and then like thirty people in London or whatever, or even seven people in London, do we think, okay, the audience have had enough of us, let's let's bow out gracefully, rather than continuing down this path of ever diminishing attendances like such faded institutions as FC Barcelona? Yeah. This is emotional blackmail. Yep we're we're effectively like
2: twisting people's arms to come or we'll stop giving the free stuff
0: it's ve- i am literally throwing my toys out of the pram
2: and we could go out at the top like eric canton i just kick a fan in the face and then drop the mic and walk out how about that it, I mean, in, in many ways charging
0: 22.50 is, is doing precisely
2: that <laughs> exactly yes uh,
3: plus booking fee um <laughs> the food is uh, the noodles that uh, Rory was noisily eating earlier, which I think you'll agree is one of the, ex- the examples of what Stephen was saying about the fact that, uh, yes, itsu pot noodles, a plethora in London, but only in very select stores in Western Yorkshire. No, that's not true. You'd get them in the co-op. <laughs> OK, well, slightly disappointing. And the fumble is, Chinch, do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, no. We are talking about... Complacency. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I did know that. I just, yeah, presumed everybody knew it. A word that you might use to describe the fact that this part of the script was written only moments before we started recording, but it's also a topic suggested by a listener. So that's why, A, we're doing it, and B, why I was so lazy in committing it to paper at this point. That is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Gavin McPhee writes this Dear Beckham, Hoddle, Tizier, and Hinchcliffe, Uh, which if you remember from the Soccer Story last week, is an important fourth person, fourth wheel, if you will. Just a note to follow up on episode 255 on loans. I was slightly underwhelmed when I saw the topic listed on my device early Wednesday morning, but as ever, you delivered insightful and thought-provoking tour de force. what a relief. I am writing to make you aware of an example that proves your point of having an effective, joined-up approach to loan placements, particularly regarding Newcastle, as you mentioned. I give you the case of Matty Longstaff. Premier League fans may remember him from such games as Manchester United 0, Newcastle 1, or Newcastle 1, Manchester United 4. In the dying days of August, Longstaff signed a loan deal with my team, Aberdeen, another one city club located in the northeast of the country with close links to the oil industry. So far, so good. Following his debut against Bottom Dwellers Ross County, in which they stole a point, Aberdeen proceeded to go on a run of five straight defeats. In the fifth of those defeats, our manager, named Stephen, appointed with some reservations from the majority of fans, but given the benefit of the doubt due to his long-standing association with the area, had to endure chants from his own fans, recommending that he would have his employment ceased in the morning and suggesting a location where he might get Tay. During this time, Longstaff has appeared in the position that he plays most often for Newcastle, on the bench. Unfortunately, Aberdeen have since turned a corner and picked up four points from six, perhaps even seven from nine by the time that you see this, indeed they have, which I'm sure will be frustrating the well-thought-out plan of Shola Amiobi, the Newcastle low manager, and his team that was working so successfully. And during that time, I believe Newcastle may have also received some new investment, which may lead to a new regime being imposed, new ideas on how to develop players for the Newcastle first team. Thanks, as always, from Gavin McPhee, who's in Marlborough, Massachusetts. Our recording schedule meant that we haven't yet had a chance to hear your thoughts either on SPM 254, uh, which was on whether you have to be a football fan to be, for, to be a football player. So here is Kirk Papas. Dear Doctors Lister, Harvey, Snow and Fleming. You have to Google them. It is a compliment, I promise. I did, it is. Long time listener and suffering Spurs fan from San Francisco here. I am a physician, a physiatrist or physiatrist, Phy- physiatrist. Phys-
0: physician is American for doctor, right?
3: Yes, but physiatrist is a particularly specific non-surgical sports and spine medicine specialist. And he's also a faculty with two medical schools. His bona fides are insured. Chinch should have done with him during his career. <laughs> Episode 254 was genius and brilliant and was a set piece for medical education. We will talk about this same concept in medical education all the time. And I asked some of my students to listen to your pod and then we had a conversation if you could be a physician if you did not love medicine. Can you be brilliant as a physician if you do not love your calling? Clearly, there are generational differences around the concept of wellness and burnout. Yet as someone with 30 years of practice, there is a stark difference from technical excellence and interpersonal excellence in terms of commitment to medicine. You can make the right diagnosis and treatment if you are technically excellent, but in my experience, if you are not committed to having empathy and a deeper understanding of your own why you became a physician, you cannot be a true healer. So, like Rory passing by a football match on the telly and stopping, when I'm making rounds and I hear about an interesting case, I stop, listen, and as a teacher, provide insight. My students are not EPL fans and think that Spurs are a basketball team from Texas. But they do understand that to be a great physician, you have to be committed, love what you are doing, and you might then become a healer. P.S. my favorite merch is the for sake, do not go to VAR. And and that is available at tpublic.com, by the way, just search the Seppi's menu. I will not be able to make your UK live pods, but I annually travel to London for some pathetic Spurs matches and stay at the Royal Society of Medicine. So the next pint of Guinness there is on me. Unlikely to be allowed in, but still, Thank you to Kirk Papas, MD, who is obviously, uh, as of this week, um, considering even more terrible games under a new Spurs manager.
2: Uh, my mum
0: might have been a member of the Royal Society of Medicine. Do you think there's like a thing where you can get in because one of your family members was in? Do you think that's a, th- that's a thing we you just wander in? That might, I thought that might I she
1: was dishonourably discharged
0: though, Rory. That was suggestion <laughs> you made. That, that case was thrown out, Stephen. She, she, she didn't do anything wrong. The, I remember going back to my old university once where you are in theory allowed as a member if once you've graduated you're a member of the university and you're allowed into the tourist heavy bits of the university um, in perpetuity like if you're a normal tourist you don't get to go in all the time but if you're a member of the university as as a graduate you are allowed in and i don't have any identifying marks to make make it clear that i am a graduate and to be honest i think most of the time i don't come across as a graduate of any university at all And, um, I had to rely on my, my, my good looks and charm to get in. And they, they just sort of, the test was, it was the guy kind of said, you you can't come in. And I said, no, no, it's all right. I'm, I'm a graduate. And he's went, all right then. And you think, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's not, this is not a good system at all. Are they just assuming that people won't lie about graduating? It's ridiculous. I would say to that university, improve your security. That's what I'd
2: say. Can I just ask a physician-based question? Was mm. Dr Seuss medically trained? He was not. No, he wasn't. Okay, just
3: just wanted that cleared up. Thanks. Good. And for many other people, that will also be cleared up. Thank you, change. Alex Barillaro mm. writes from Melbourne. Dear Marco, Rude, Frank and Paolo, your podcast is, as usual, superb. The Brentford versus Liverpool echelon of footballing content. You guys at Liverpool, I'm the Brentford. Listening to episode 254 about the thoughts of Benny White and indeed chinch, regarding whether you need to be a fan of football to be a footballer, I found myself agreeing with your, as usual, brilliant and nuanced points. Especially given I work as a coach at a football academy in Melbourne, although not one affiliated with the club, as an academy coach, I've been struck by just how many kids don't actually watch football, yet excel at playing it. While it's hardly a majority, I'd suggest a decent portion of kids, especially those aged around 8 to 13, play football for the playing, rather than having any interest in indulging in the sport elsewhere. There are reasons. Football is the most participated sport for kids in Australia, but games are on after midnight most of the time. And the amount of kids who respond to the question of, who do you support, with, I don't know, but I like Mbappe, is pretty noticeable. But I also suggest that with this generation, even in the UK, we're going to get three distinct types of footballers. Those who bought into a team early on, those who play because they enjoy it but don't have any real interest in watching, and those who discovered football via FIFA and thus don't really have any affiliations with teams. Interesting to see if the next great footballer will arrive at PSG and say, I've wanted to play here since I was 11 and had a PSG kit on my ultimate team. Keep up the ace work. Uh, that's from Alex Barilaro. And Robbie Walls, not Wells, nor Bear correspondent Robbie Harms, has something that chimes with this. Uh, dear Adele, Elvis, Sting, and the artist formerly known as Chinch... <laughs> Uh, because I am chunky. First and <laughs> Oh, for-
2: don't, that's not on the email, is it?
3: No, but uh, that's... Right, that well, is, don't read it out then. That is the refrain that is necessary. First and foremost, I'm loving the pod as ever, and just had a brief point to make, not on a specific episode, but on the issues that you've raised, raised previously regarding the absurd fear that FIFA and the like have over losing young people as an audience. Amid the talk of Biennial World Cup, pitched by Arsene Wenger, the issue of trying to entertain young people has once again reared its head, with many powerful figures believing that there is real need for change. As a 22-year-old, and someone perhaps in Wenger's target audience, I find this argument utter nonsense, with football still seemingly as popular as ever, potentially even more so as a result of FIFA, the game, which is often seen as the major cause for concern. If there is any growing uninterest among young people, it is not because football is too slow or too long, it's that it is inaccessible. A lot of my football-loving friends don't watch the game quite so often because it is almost impossible to afford the growing number of subscriptions. It's now almost 100 pounds a month for Sky Sports plus BT Sport, Amazon, as well as a TV license needed for the BBC. A Sky subscription used to include La Liga, yet it now requires an added extra of La Liga TV, which is a strand of Premier Sports, another channel that requires a subscription. With ticket prices to attend games also extortionate, young people will fall out of love with the game because they cannot access it, not because they don't want to watch it. And that's why it's my view that if, say, the European Super League had gone ahead, something I was, of course, opposed to, and as part of the proposal they offered a Netflix-style £10 a month service to watch every game, it will receive a lot of backing from a younger audience, not just because it's easier, but also because it is cheaper. Football really doesn't need a major overhaul, it just needs to be remembered that it shouldn't be so difficult to actually watch it. Thank you as always for providing me with great weekly entertainment all the best Robbie walls not wells nor harms
1: can I just say in response to Robbie's point going to football doesn't just mean going to watch elite football yes elite football is expensive either to go and watch in person or to have all of the television subscriptions required to follow it there is good value football available locally pretty much wherever you live and nothing quite beats the experience of being at a football match, whatever the level. So I don't quite get the the idea that it's too expensive to watch football because there is football available at at, at a good price,
0: and you don't have to work too hard to find it. Stephen is is absolute, that is absolutely right that that we we have to separate kind of watching elite football and watching watching football. Football itself is not inaccessible in any way, really. Um, you can always find a way of watching football but I do think that in the context of the kind of worries from Wenger from Andrea Agnelli and all those people who keep banging on about young people that's something that they seem to be totally blissfully unaware of that perhaps the reason fewer young people are watching or go, go into top level games and watching top level games is it all costs a load of money and that maybe if you made, made elite football a little bit more accessible to them then you wouldn't have that problem and need to rearrange the calendar to, to try and capture their attention that is a part of the debate that is never really engaged
1: with and just on alex's point, alex in melbourne definitely some of the things that he mentioned there i see reflected in the club where my boys play football there are those who are absolutely football obsessed both in terms of playing and reading about playing fifa exchanging match attack cards etc there are those who are good at football but aren't necessarily that interested in following it beyond playing it and there are those who just come along because it's good exercise and it's their their parents feel that it's a sensible thing for them to be involved in once or twice a week so you definitely get that cross-section and that probably hasn't changed a huge amount over the years football is still a gateway sport in many ways for people so I, I think idea, the, the, the suggestion that, that young people aren't as interested in football anymore that, that doesn't bear witness to, to what I see in terms of the huge number just involved in
0: in my son's club never mind all the different clubs that they play every Saturday morning There's probably a podcast in this to be fair but the, that, that's, you do wonder to what extent this is an example of us assuming that, that uh, Everything is a modern phenomenon. Because if you go back to when we were kids, which is a long time ago, um, there was literally no football on television. We all coped. We all fell in love with football anyway. The, I mean, I, I think I don't know. I don't know which of you went to games regularly, but I, I didn't until I was about fourteen. No. And by that, by that stage, I absolutely adored football. I don't think I, 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 probably have never loved football as much as when I didn't watch any of it on the telly because it wasn't on the telly. We went, we went to a top flight match for special occasions. You know we, we
1: probably went four times a season once for each of our birthdays, me and my brothers. but that, that's when my dad would take us to top flight football. The rest of the time we might have have
0: gone and watched you know a local lower league side. But um, then I suppose the thing is that you did I, have I told you about the debate I had with a West Ham fan on Twitter ages ago? It's not a very interesting story, but it's relevant that a guy that's
3: one of two then that's fine
0: the no it was the guy who and I was I can't remember what the context was but we were talking about how people fall in love with football and I said that that I find it strange the idea that people fall in love with going to watch one single team rather than the sport as a whole because the way you encounter football is by playing it and someone came back to me and said well that's not true in my case I was going to West Ham long before I played football Which I found...
3: That felt like an audience response to your the, story.
0: <laughs> the, drill, the drill is massively involved with this story. But I found that, found that really strange. Because I would have thought that the easiest thing for everybody is to play football. That is the, that's the, the natural starting point. And it's after that that you're interested in it, even if, you know, not necessarily playing organized football, but kicking a ball around and stuff. But maybe, maybe there, is, there is something in that in, in terms of how we encounter football explains how we engage with it. The, and it, it, in in terms of Australia, yeah, like obviously Premier League games are on late at night. But as far as I'm aware, the Central Coast Mariners aren't playing late at night. You know, A-League football on during the day. Like you, you don't need, you don't. Maybe that's the problem, and and it's it's driven by elite football trying to convincing everybody that it's the only form of football, but it's not. That you can go and you can just watch football, and it all it will all bring you pleasure. It might might not be as good as watching PSG or Man City, but it it's all football and watching football watching anything done to a high level that you have done yourself is entertaining uh, by the way rory
1: have you have you tipped your your workman to to provide that sound effect every time you're
0: drilling down into the detail In <laughs> so be it knows um, it's a feature of the I'm, pod i'm hoping it would um... It's going to function as like a laugh track.
3: <laughs> I was saying, it, is, it is the Greek chorus. It will, it will chime in with something very relevant at every po- point that it comes in. And I've also just realised why uh, Stephen's parents had four children, just to give him the excuse to go not once or twice or three times to a, <laughs> to a local Premier League <laughs> or <laughs> top flight club. Um, finally, Stephen Edmund, bear in mind where we started this correspondence section. Finally, Stephen Edmund says this, Dear Black, Redmond, Regis and Akabusi, uh, which to to people my age will immediately recognise as the uh, 1991 World Championship 4x400 metres gold medal team. He says over the Yanks, no less, have that American listenership. He says completely unnecessarily uh, aggressively. But yes, I do remember that. Antonio Pettigrew, uh, Chris Akabusi beat him on the last uh, the last uh, straight of the last leg. I've spoken was, to Chris Akabusi about he, that. It's very important. was he was he booyah? What, what did he? Th- what did Akabusi? Ca- it wasn't a catchphrase, just a sound,
2: wasn't it? What no, did he- I. Is it wasn't it Aruga. Aruga, that was, was it? That no, it was Aruga. Fashanu. That's Fashanu. Yes. So what was Sh- Fashanu? Yeah, what was... Fashanu. Aru- wasn't it something like that? Wasn't it Chris Akabusi? Uh, we'll have to yeah. find out. Yes, something
0: like that. I think people
3: think Chris Akabusi was a Wooga, but he wasn't. No. Uh, Chris Akabusi, West Ham fan. Oh. Who might have engaged with Rory um, in a recent Twitter conversation. Possibly. Possibly. <laughs> um, so this is from Stephen Edmonds after his intro. Just a quick one for Andy. If you're going to scrap with Matt Letizia about who appeared in England post-training session free kick competitions, focus on hooks to the body because he's very good at avoiding the jab. Take care from Stephen. Uh, that, <laughs> where's the drill now? Damn it! <laughs> uh, so that might be uh, people oh, will be aware. Yeah, sorry, yes. Yes, have you got I'm there, gent's It's, it's just, not a delay.
2: <laughs> it took a while. It was it was a penny that was rolling and rolling and rolling, and then it dropped. Yes, dropped a lot quicker yes. than
3: live from the Heartlands, which is yes, this um, is an improvement. Exist. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So as previously mentioned, this week's topic is a listener suggestion. That listener is Harvey Sayer. And here is his email, which is entitled, Complacency, football's greatest leveller. It has a a question mark. Dear revered podcasters, it is a recent thought of mine, which Rory will no doubt prove wrong, that complacency is the greatest equaliser remaining in football. Barcelona's continually catastrophic financial and sporting mismanagement is the most obvious example. But almost all elite European sides are guilty in one form or another. Clubs such as Real Madrid, Manchester United and Arsenal's recruitment strategies range from confused to incoherent. Meanwhile, attacking imbalance has been an issue at PSG since the day the Qataris bought the club. Yet. They've never seriously sought to solve the issue. To further underline how audaciously overconfident elite clubs are, they appoint completely unproven managers based entirely on their playing careers or respective club connection despite their complacency Europe's best still enjoy enough regular relative or regional success to sustain their status and maintain that status quo often it appears clubs such as Spurs or less successfully Manchester United pin their hopes on a manager piecing together confused board level decision making interesting that it comes once again in this week for Spurs even Borussia Dortmund nearly failed to qualify for the Champions League last season despite their competitive and financial advantages over nearest rivals Eintracht Frankfurt meanwhile teams in Brentford or Bilbao are forced to operate significantly more shrewdly because they have no margin to be complacent to achieve their relative goals. Would love to know your uh, opinions. Kind regards from Harvey. So it is with that ringing in our ears that we embark upon a conversation about complacency. It's often the thing that everyone says that they're avoiding, but is it actually present in a much wider scale than we thought? Is complacency football's greatest leveller?
0: I think it's the one thing that holds big clubs back from exerting a sort of continual dominance. It's almost a natural, it's a natural function that you need in the game, almost, to to prevent everything being decided before a ball is kicked, simply by who can afford to play, to pay people the most. So Barcelona are a great example, that Barcelona, kind of, I don't know, over the last 10, 15 years, seemed to make, seemed to look at their success and not interpret it as being the consequence of making a succession of correct decisions and lots of smart thinking. So the appointment of Guardiola, the kind of the way they've, they've instituted the kind of La Masia style, all that stuff. That was all good thinking, smart decision making, quite innovative, disruptive stuff. And they have come to see it as being their God given natural state. And it's that—that's that, the thing that holds the big clubs back. That tendency to assume that when things are good, they—they they are as they should be. That the that the game exists. The natural order of things is that they that they are on the t- on top, and that they they don't need to continually innovate to to justify and legitimise that position. And I think that is is yes, it is a it, the answer to the question is yes. That's a really important leveler, but I think it's also crucial that the game has it because if not. It would get quite boring quite fast and one of the things that i think in england particularly in the next few years we're going to have to track a little bit is if man city show the same consistency in terms of their decision making their kind of effectiveness will that make because of their financial advantage and it'd be the same for newcastle in the championship will that make <laughs> <laughs> Will that make the Premier League a bit dull if Man City basically get stuff right, have the most money, and get stuff right if they have the petrol and the ideas, as Wenger put it? Does that, in a way, remove that natural limiting factor that that sort of that yeah naturally occurring like counterbalance and have some sort of impact on the general interest level in the game?
2: Is that? It's definitely complacency. It's not just bad decision making. Uh, that's a really good question. I think is it. I suppose, yeah, that's true, actually. You can't necessarily
0: trace it automatically to complacency, can you? You can't, you can't assume it is complacency. They might have been trying to innovate and just got it wrong.
2: Trilling mm. <laughs> down <laughs> into the uh, subject yes, there.
0: Exactly. That
1: when, was
2: for
0: when, you, Chinch, on that occasion. The,
2: the, Excellent, the, thank you.
3: The Greek chorus get, gets kind of ripped, their throats rips out as Rory presses the mute button. Is,
1: is complacency sort of like the umbrella term for all of the contributing factors? Because th- there's probably an element of, of hubris about it, the the assumption at executive level that decisions they've made in the past that have turned out to be good ones are easily repeatable. When in fact, as we've previously discussed, there's always an element of luck as to how the components come together. However well-intentioned, however much money is sensibly invested, you still need the right combination, the right climate, the right circumstances to, to bring about the success that you've, you've envisioned. So this idea that you would certainly feel that, that some of the clubs we're talking about, that they have simply assumed that they are incapable of making a bad decision, that everything they touch turns to gold. And then there's that failure to recognise that the slick, cyclic, cyclical nature of things that every so often your impressive academy is going to go through a bit of a dry spell and you might need to innovate as to how you recruit to fill the void rather than relying on on continually turning out your own talented players or failing to recognize that you you had a a bit of a lucky run a glut of good talented young players coming through at the same time as Manchester United had in the early 90s as Barcelona have had more recently, but that in reality, that isn't sustainable. So there are quite a few different factors, aren't there, that, that come into it that, that lead to elite level clubs taking their eye off the ball or taking things for granted. And I think what we've seen with Barcelona and Real Madrid in particular is extraordinary how rapidly they appear to have surrendered their position of strength, both in terms of personnel and financial muscle and it'll be interesting to see whether Manchester City when they do have to replace Pep Guardiola avoid making some of the same mistakes
0: I wonder how much of this and I don't have any experience in like the corporate world but I wonder how much of it applies there as well like, so take Barcelona Barcelona you, you can look at what happened as we all did certainly within the media look at what happened with that generation of, of Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets Messi Jordi Alba to an extent they signed him from Valencia having I think let him go early on Piquet and you can look at that and say, this is the reward for our smart thinking, this, this vindicates our decision-making. And I think if you're an executive, that is what you're gonna to wanna to do because you want to justify your existence and you want to garland your legacy. So you're gonna say, this is, this is where we've all been, this is, what, this, is, you know, this is what we've done, this is testament to my brilliance. Or you can look at it and say, well, actually, you know, groups of good players, generations of good players happen occasionally almost at random that it's not quite at random but there's a confluence of factors that come together to bring about a class of 92 as javier niesta Jets, a portuguese golden generation like they it, it's just this weird confluence of factors to do with the quality of the coaching and the opportunity and and the the clubs that they're playing for having needs in those positions and all this stuff it it doesn't necessarily happen you can't generate a golden generation just because you, you have the right ideas. You can put all the right ideas, all the right coaching in place, all the facilities, all that stuff. You have know, the best scouting in the world. You will not necessarily get a class of 92. You can't guarantee it. And you might have a flawed approach that doesn't have all those things that we think are important and produce an endless supply of players, which is what basically has happened in Argentina for quite a long time, that the players just kind of grow and they go to all these different clubs and then they come through and they are amazing at football. There's No, no one would hold up Argentina as like a, a paradigm of youth development, but I think the danger is that because executives at the clubs want to take credit for it, they do, they they remove the randomness from the equation. Does they say that there is no room for randomness in in this story of my own greatness, mm-hmm. which I think happens in business as well? Is there's no there's not necessarily that much like recognition that sometimes you might get lucky. So I've been reading a lot about Saudi and listening to a lot of kind of businessy podcasts, and one one character that keeps coming up is um. Is Masayoshi san the guy who runs SoftBank's Vision Fund, who's renowned I as just this? Just looked over his shoulder in case that person happened to be coming. No, 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 no. The no. time you mentioned his name, <laughs> I thought, I thought he's everywhere. Dr- <laughs> I thought the drilling, the drilling had stopped, and perhaps I was needed to offer some sort of, sort of, I don't know, plaintive remark
2: about work that I don't understand. But also, he... you look like you're being blinded by an interrogator's lamp. Are you? What's going yeah, on here? You that's... look, you're struggling I'm... to see. There's only two
0: habitable rooms in my house.
2: Hmm. One of them
0: happens to be directly in the path of the sunlight.
2: Have so, you got any curtains?
0: No. <laughs> no curtains? No curtains.
2: Wow. Again, no
0: carpet, just underlay. I
1: cannot okay. stress to you how... Sorry, much- get back
2: to your point. I just, you how just look it? like you've had a lamp on you. Well,
1: anyway, <laughs> anyway once, whilst you're talking about having looked, looked into Saudi, you do
0: look like you're being persecuted.
3: <laughs> or looked into <laughs> by
2: Saudi.
0: <laughs> the, but anyway, Masayoshi-san is the guy who runs SoftBank's Vision Fund, who's this great, like he's regarded as this great like investor, this guy who kind of spots tech startups and he invested in Uber and he invested in WeWork and stuff like this. And because of the narrative of like executive greatness, he he's seen as this, this wonderful kind of angel who who dominates the global financial market. In reality, he gets most of like, most of his bets are awful. He he makes a, a, a succession of terrible decisions and trades off the fact that he was one of the early adopters of Uber or whatever and we worked, which turned out to also be a disaster. But anyway, th- there is an, a desire to, to, I suppose that what it what it says is there is a desire not to attribute things to luck or being in the right place at the right time, but to pretend that we all have control over the inherent chaos of life. And that applies in football as well, that yes, all those coaches at La Masia, Charlie Rexach and Albert Benaides and all of those, they were all really important in bringing that generation through. But ultimately at the core of it, there is a degree of randomness that Barcelona have chosen to ignore and assumed that La Masia will keep on pumping out players. And the slightly annoying bit of that is that if you look at Gavi and Nico, Balde and Ansu Fati, it turns out that they might be right again. They might be be able to hit, hit gold for a second time, but ultimately that doesn't necessarily remove the fact that there is an element of luck from the equation, which means that Barca have taken credit for everything that's happened themselves and thought, this is proof of our greatness. Therefore, all the decisions we make must be great because we are great and maybe forgotten that they have to keep on at the cutting edge to remain there, that your place is never kind of guaranteed by your own idea of your own greatness. But if we accept that, that randomness Rory and,
1: and whether or not those executives are able to see it doesn't necessarily matter providing they acknowledge that there are certain things that they can control. And that makes the financial mismanagement and the surrender of those positions of strength by some of European football's non-Premier League elite clubs all the more crazy, doesn't it? They've allowed themselves to get into a position where they were overpaying for players and potentially even overpaying on wages, regardless of the fact that actually... They had a great negotiating position, which is come and play for us we're great. It would be better to play here than some of the other clubs that that are interested in you you 'd have almost thought they could get on get away with underpaying such would be the attraction of going to the likes of Barcelona or Real Madrid or Juventus. How they ended up in a situation where money seemingly was unnecessarily spent in an attempt. To persuade a player to come and join them, who you would have thought that would have been their preference anyway, and they've now ended up in a situation where where that is, is that's handicapping them potentially even more so than the, the the slowing down in the production of of their own talent. So that's where the hubris comes into it a little bit more, and perhaps that's where complacency is the the correct term to to assume that your decision making was correct and appropriate when you were being so terribly wasteful.
3: But it's, it's all to do with, is it not the, the difference between self-regard and self-awareness? So if, if you are insistent or you naturally think of yourself as the number one protagonist in the telling of your own story, your lack of self-awareness is going to send you down a few incorrectly chosen paths. But if you are aware that you have got to that point or you are at that point in your story because of these things, like you mentioned, the the right decisions, the, the, the element of luck, the fact that you need to be constantly ahead of it, you have to be proactive to be able to stay uh, at least maintaining the status quo, those are the people who don't display complacency and therefore those are the people who can be relied upon perhaps to make the right decisions and therefore to stay at the top, the, you know, the Sir Alex Ferguson's who have the ability to regenerate their team, understanding that they need to probably, but ahead of what others might suggest that he should, he should change that player when everybody's thinking, hang on a minute, he's, he's in his peak. Why are you doing that now? Because in a year's time, he you know, he changes clubs and in a year's time, he's not quite so good anymore. Ah, he, he knew it's, it's it happens in other sports too. So that, that, that to me seems to be the central theme that if you are self aware enough, you avoid being complacent because you understand that you are only a part of the whole story. But if the self-regard element is a little bit played, played a little bit higher. Then you are insistent on being the central part of your story. Therefore, you are the ones making the right decisions, and it's all down to you. And you are shaping everything that has happened in that context. You say you see you see it in business, as you mentioned, Rory, and you see it in managers as well. The way that managers, particularly towards the end of a tenure at a club, they start to shape the narrative around themselves, either as a protection mechanism because they think they're going to be sacked and they want to be employable in the future, or because they want to to make sure that there is a, a narrative developing that at least apportions part of the blame somewhere else. So it happens a lot in football. It would seem to me that complacency drives that because they have a lack of self awareness.
0: But at the same time, like it's, it is difficult to. So the on the financial thing with Barcelona, I think they made a succession of terrible decisions, obviously. And uh, if you think about what happened when they signed Usman Dembele from Dortmund, where they they went into a tarik Panja, my colleague um told this story very well they went into this hotel room in monte carlo to meet dortmund executives and they, they'd like set this price i think they set 100 million euros or 100 million pounds as the price they were prepared to pay and the dortmund guys were like no 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 it's, it's 150 and if you say no we're getting the plane see you later and they were like, all right yeah we'll pay 150 yeah, fine. that that is just being that's not complacency that's that's rank stupidity yeah just sheer sheer idiocy and weakness and a lack of kind of backbone
3: but also Um, having a having a lack of consequences because at that time the only consequences to any of the decisions they had made have been good consequences so again not understanding that that's because of either luck or potentially good decisions but there could be bad decisions and bad luck in the future.
0: It's not having process. It's not having, it, it, it's riding the wave that sometimes you'll make good decisions and they'll have good outcomes. And sometimes, sometimes you'll make good decisions that have bad outcomes. And sometimes you'll make bad decisions that have good outcomes. Like you, you, there is an element of randomness in all of this. The, the other thing, the, the complacency, I think, at the heart of Barca's transfer spending is their assumption that the good times would keep rolling. And we've seen that time and time again with clubs, we saw it with Leeds under Peter Ridsdale, that there was this assumption that they would just qualify for the Champions League every year. They did it once, why wouldn't we do it again? And clubs do fall into that trap quite a lot. That's the the, the sort of innate complacency of, of Barcelona in the transfer market. The flip side of that is that there has to be a team at the top of the transfer market. There have to be apex predators, because if there aren't, then it doesn't work. So you can bemoan Man United or Chelsea or Man City or Barca or Real Madrid not going and doing the clever things in the transfer market that Leon do or that Porto did or or whoever it might be. But the reality is that they can't because as soon as Real Madrid are involved, the price goes up and there is, that is a natural market function. So I think there was an element of that with Barcelona. There was a complacency there in the market that, that meant that they felt that... The good times would keep rolling. They would always have loads of money. And why would we get it wrong? We've not done it wrong before. But to an extent, it's hard to blame them for, being, for having to pay, pay a Barcelona premium, because they can't really avoid paying the Barcelona premium.
1: Is there a slight difference between a Barcelona or a Real Madrid and what we see in the Premier League? Because at least in the Premier League, there is an excuse for any club that slightly takes its eye off the ball or makes a mistake that they are one of four, five, six, maybe even now seven in a very similar position financially. So there are multiple clubs who are there to be able to take advantage of any slight stumble. Is that more understandable than what's happened in Spain where a position of of dominance that seemed unwavering has been surrendered, that, that Barcelona have allowed themselves. It's one thing to lose a bit of pace with other elite clubs in Europe, because yes, you have to accept that suddenly Manchester City and PSG have got more money than anyone else. They're the, the apex predator, to use that, that term, Rory. But to have lost ground domestically it's, it's, it demonstrates just how spectacularly they've allowed that to unravel. Because we've talked about and fans talk about how elite clubs unsettle their players you know if you've got if you, you know if you're a Dortmund or a Spurs or, or, or a club at that sort of level and you've got an outstanding player you will increasingly find yourself getting cross to use the Usman Dembele example that one of the elite clubs elsewhere has come in and unsettled that player which is why it, it, it seems even more extraordinary to me that Barcelona ended up in that situation where they paid 50 million euro more than they were anticipating or expected to because yes there is a premium that they have to pay but the minute that they are of showing an interest, you would feel that that also leads to the Dortmund in this scenario's hand being forced ever so slightly because Usman Dembélé is going to want to make that move. So yes, there is a premium they have to pay, but they they have an advantage in within the negotiations of knowing that the player is going to want to to join them. So negotiating a price they were willing to pl- pay doesn't seem to to be terribly difficult. So why have they kept making so many bad decisions that have cost them so badly?
2: Uh, just think about that, the Premier League example you said there, Steve, with maybe six or seven clubs in a similar financial position. Surely, as he was talking about, about self-awareness, you'd be acutely aware of that any, if it's complacency or bad decision-making, could prove so incredibly costly. You'd be even more on your toes to make sure that you're doing more than any of those clubs around you are doing. So is it, again, just bad decision-making? Not, surely, surely a, a boardroom is not, well, we've got to the Premier League, we've been here for five or six years, we, we, we're going to be fine, whatever we do. Surely in the, the current state of the, the Premier League and the financial situation in the Premier League, they'd be even more aware of being very careful about their, their planning and their decision-making. You think complacency would be completely gone for those clubs?
0: But then you have, to we've well, got two two really good examples of, of teams who are coping with the legacy of complacency, don't you? And the, and it's different forms of complacency in Man United and Spurs. So United seem to, seem to have been complacent in a really literal sense. They've kind of decided that what they have at the moment is enough, that they're yeah. happy but just to be in the Champions League. As long as they qualify for the Champions League, that's fine. And they, I guess that they're playing the numbers a little bit. They, they assume that if you if you are in, in the top four every year, every so often that will turn into a title challenge and every so often it will turn into a title win and that's kind of what united are, are happy with that status quo that's that's fine for them they they don't seem to have any real idea of how to improve their managerial situation. Do you, feel that's,
2: do you feel that's true? Again, you absolutely believe that that's, that's yeah, how they, I, they see their club at the moment. I
0: think in, in that sense, complacency is a slightly weird weird, yeah. weird weird word to use for it. But I think basically they they look at it and think... We well, it's was, just
2: where we are and what we can conceivably... OK, we've made mistakes maybe along the way with coaches and players to get yeah. to this point. But all we can achieve at the moment with this group and what all the other clubs are doing, it's not a complacency. It's probably, is it a realisation of where they sit and what they can conceivably achieve.
0: I think under the under the glazers they maybe can't hope to truly match City and Chelsea in terms of spending, but they could certainly be smarter. They could be more like Liverpool in that sense. They could be they could use their money better. I think they've looked at it, and the only way you can read the situation, I might be wrong, but the only way I can read the situation is they've looked at it and they've thought, right, we are aware that there are limitations with this manager and this squad. But changing it to get to get in a manager who is capable of of maximizing that ability, their kind of financial advantage to turn it into regular title wins or even regular title challenges is very expensive and might involve a kind of, what's the word, combative character like Conte. And they seem to have been burned by Mourinho and Van Gaal. So they're happier with, they are complacent in the sense that they seem to be happy with an easier life, but a lower kind of bar. Spurs, I think, haven't been complacent. I think Spurs have been self-congratulatory and they have not realized quite where i'm drilling down again
2: have you got a hump have you got a humpback whale mating (laughs) (laughs) in the the garden have you got swimming what's going on that doesn't sound like a drill that sounds that's a
1: really big fish
0: tank they're having put in (laughs) the i'll finish my point quickly the um i think spurs haven't been complacent in that sense i think spurs have just made bad decisions and they've they've got a succession of things wrong. And that's what's taken Spurs in the space of two and a half fairly spectacular years from a Champions League final to ninth in the Premier League.
1: Yeah, the, the, the thing with Spurs is that they perhaps just didn't recognise or appreciate what they had with Pochettino and didn't think, well, we're going to give this guy who has achieved so much for us an opportunity to try and do so again before we jettison him because he would seem to be exactly the kind of manager that Tottenham need right about now and and, and they've, they've just made it getting rid of him has proved to be a bad decision and the way that they've subsequently re- replaced him has been even worse the thing with Manchester United it, it, almost as though it isn't complacency but that that is just their business strategy their focus is on maximizing Manchester United's potential off the field and by all account, it would seem to be that they continue to make good decisions in that regard. So providing the football team is performing at a level that is good enough for them to continue selling it as a brand, that's all that they are interested in. And the only accusation perhaps of complacency, but even then they, they wouldn't have seen it, was that when Sir Alex Ferguson's time was coming to an end that they didn't effectively look at what Fergie had achieved over the years in terms of recycling the team, and and didn't get him to do it one more time to the benefit of his successor.
3: We very rarely use the chat function on this uh, this podcast on the on the Zoom calls, and um, out of the blue, um, there's been a chat conversation just in the last. 30 to 45 seconds, which... I didn't even know
1: Chinch knew that was there.
3: <laughs> which, which has been prompted by Chinch. And, 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 and he brings up a point that the presenter who's in charge of making these pivots has been attempting to pivot to for about 20 minutes. But let's not... That, well, you make would that, say
2: that, wouldn't you?
3: Let's not make me the central <laughs> protagonist of my own story because that would be uh, lacking self-awareness. Um, Complacency—the re- the reason that, that you kind of pick up on the, the word complacency when you are a football fan is because you, as I mentioned in the intro, you you have heard it mentioned so many times from a group of people who always talk about how it's very very much a possibility and they will absolutely avoid it. So the fact that there's such a disconnect from football at the playing and coaching level potentially with the with the the boardroom level at so many clubs—the fact that they don't—they they should listen to the cliches that are being spouted by some of the people who work for them and they might do a better job of running their clubs. But but there, there is a general sense, is there not, Chinch, that complacency is the kind of thing that is avoided in football because they talk about avoiding it so much. But yet, is that actually true? I imagine there would have been a whole gamut of games like Saudi Arabia nil, England nil, that you would have gone into absolutely <laughs> guaranteeing yourself <laughs> at three-point mm, particular, not, not so not much competitive friendly. Um, but but is, it, is it true that players know about complacency and therefore are able to avoid it? Or is uh, it absolutely not the case?
2: I'm not sure that players do avoid it. I'm convinced that every single player goes through a period of complacency. It's human nature that when maybe you've achieved something that you do tend to to think, well, I can ease off slightly. And then maybe it's the, it's the really clever ones that realise, or they're told by their coaches or or teammates that, hang on a minute, no, you've got to continue to, to push and to, to raise your standards. There might be a lot more going on behind the scenes, but I think Deli Alley is a great example of someone who seemingly... Got to such a, a a pinnacle in his career where he was an England regular, he's playing well for his club, everything was going so well, and then there's been a dramatic drop off that people are trying to find reasons for. Is it formations? Is it coaches? Or or is it the player? And I've heard different stories about his attitude. And again, the, so just thinking it, it, it not just to say that it's it's just Delhi Alley, and there might be other again other things going on around him that is causing this kind of drop-off in form. But I, I do feel, I'm trying to think back about, I, I remember playing for, there was a game at York City that Everton played and we were, I think we were cup holders and we were beaten at York 3-2. Uh, and I remember after the game, Joe Royal picking me out in, individually and saying, you know, since you got into the England squad and played for England, your form has dipped and I remember sitting there naturally thinking, "No, you're completely wrong." But then you start to think, "Well, hold on a minute. If they're saying this, there's clearly something." And that probably was subconsciously what had happened. You think you've kind of got there, and you don't have to do much to to maintain that. But clearly, you've got to work as hard to maintain it as you did to get there. But it is, I, I think, it is a, a failing in in most human beings. If you are successful, it's hard to maintain those levels, and that's why so much admiration for players who have won everything and earned fortunes but still drive themselves on in their mid-30s keep going and going that's an incredible character trait but it's it's something that i i'm sure every even professional sportsman will go through when they reach such a high level you think well i don't need to necessarily keep pushing to to stay where i am
0: well you look at you look at this podcast as, a, as an example of of, of just sort of innate complacency like yeah. two yeah. or three years we really put we with a scrappy underdog and now just whatever we can think of two or three hours before we record doesn't hugh's not even bothered yeah. with the script today yeah. He normally normally prints well, the scripts off not asked today he's blaming he's it on bothered. the
2: baby but
3: it's not he just couldn't no, give a shit just, it my, my printer is just, broken my oh yeah that old favorite broken. i've got yeah. very complacent about my printer which apparently yeah. was broken yeah. and i hadn't even noticed
1: sell out one show in manchester rory and all of a sudden think you yeah. can pitch gigs in manchester and london simultaneously exactly. is it is it, is it, is exactly. it something that you guys
2: can does it resonate with you in terms of the jobs that you do and how you feel about winning awards or doing you know live broadcast is it something that do you ever think hold on a minute do i there's something i need to maintain here i can't just think ah oh, well i can just do anything and it'll be fine
3: steven's been phoning it in for years
2: mm. i'm
3: goal, probably goal goal look it's really easy <laughs>
1: You do Burnley games. <laughs> you watch back to the day <laughs> of the weekend.
3: Yes, I did. Did an excellent job, Stephen. I thought. Really, really, you've reached that kind of level <laughs> at which complacency will now be a very natural path.
1: Don't, it, don't go on, Rory. I, I was going to make a serious point, but it's no. I, as I might, I think oh, okay. it's
0: there's an interesting line, isn't there? Because there's, you want to be confident in your job. That's true of, of any job, regardless of its professional footballer or not. You want to feel some sort of belief that you can do it well without thinking that you will always do it well even if you don't try that's basically the the line and it is that's probably a difficult balance to strike. I think Chinch is probably right we maybe all maybe all fall into that trap sometimes I'm quite I think I'm probably slightly complacent about like broadcast things, like I never really think about them anymore. As I used to kind to of make sure I knew exactly what I was going to say, and I, and I was I was going to I was going in, and I was to, I had my point my talking points, and I was I was kind of nervous. Whereas now it's you just sort of think, yeah, I'll. But that's experience, though, and confidence,
2: isn't it? That's, that's not yeah.
0: Well, it's probably it's, to be honest, James, it's lack of time, um, yeah, lack of preparation time. I think in the course of my day-to-day life, I'm so riven with self-doubt that I own I, that like awards on the rare occasions that I've won them it's more it it makes me think okay all right maybe you're not that bad at this that's my genuine like natural response to it not it's not you're great it's it's kind of this this is a kind of reminder that you're maybe you're kind of in the right you know you're you're okay like don't be don't beat yourself up too much rather than thinking you can just phone in I always think I always think everything I write is terrible so that, that maybe staves off complacency. Not all of it. Generally.
3: Yeah, most of it. but, but there's, Yeah, there's, occasionally <laughs> it's, it's okay. <laughs> so if complacency th- is, is, is essentially, we're saying that it means that you are, a, you are the architects, kind of unwittingly or not, the architects of your own downfall. Mm. Surely what you're saying is what, what I would subscribe to as well, is that if you are to have a downfall, at least you don't want to be the architect of it. So complacency would therefore lead to you being the reason why. And I just don't want to be the reason why. Mm-hmm.
1: Is that not, I think, without wanting to give too much away about our personalities, is that not, I think we probably share that trait that we have enough self-awareness and enough self-doubt to hopefully keep us on our toes in mm-hmm. what we do professionally and, and primarily the the area of our work in which we, we need, you know we need to do. A good job is, is comparing what complacency of a of a young man as most footballers are, and middle aged men as a majority of businessmen executives at clubs are. Is, is that a little bit of a false equivalence? It, it, it's a you, you've used the the, um, the example of Delhi Ali Chinch. In mm. that I think it's much more understandable to think that a footballer would lose his way, lose his focus on the back of constantly being praised, bearing in mind they are where they are first and foremost on the back of having incredible natural talents. Whereas you would expect those who are running the club to be able to absorb the praise for good decisions whilst acknowledging that some of it is down to blind luck and that they are going to continue to have to work hard to make the right decisions you know, we, we everyone makes mistakes as a as a young man footballers are having to do it you know in, in the spotlight of you know playing at the elite level of but, the, the world's most popular sport
3: but that's what managers are there for aren't they Chinch? and that's why you mentioned about joe Roy saying that to you after that york game because it is the manager's responsibility being of that age that you mentioned steve and having that experience and also understanding from generations of footballers that they have managed that this is this is a a central tenet is it not of of man management is to see Mm -hmm. that developing in a player and to understand that that needs to be something that they either themselves learn to appreciate and therefore stop or just simply telling them that they've been rubbish or they are getting complacent because it's it is often trotted out just as much by a manager that they won't be complacent in this upcoming cup game against a team who are four divisions below them so so They're aware of it, but they say it exactly. They articulate it in exactly the same way that the player does. So they obviously said it to the player as well, because so much of what a player says is regurgitated from what a manager has told them. So there must be again. There's a disconnect, isn't there? That somebody somewhere is saying it, but not understanding why they're saying it, and they are falling. That it is a pitfall that they that they discover later in life.
2: Yes, managers, coaches are there, and they will see it because again, they've got maturity probably on their side, even though you're talking to someone who's 27, 28, still in terms of uh, emotional maturity, they're probably, again, not truly 27, 28. So I think it is, it does happen, as I say, with lots of players and coaches will be saying this either in the dressing room in front of other players, which was how I was given it, or in private saying that, you know, again, you've achieved this, but you've got to maybe change your thinking and change the way that you do stuff. It is a, it's man management basically, isn't it? But it will happen Again and again, but I do agree with what Steve's saying. It is maybe different for these for these young footballers, maybe a bit more understandable that this complacency creeps in. But again, because they haven't, it might be the environment, but I just think, again, their lack of experience of, of the world and and how hard maybe you do have to work to get to where you need to be. If you have that instinctive, natural talent, you can get to the top relatively quickly. And then the hard work really to, to maintain, because that's when the criticism will come in when you don't perform on that level. And so maybe some people aren't built to, To to stay at the top level for five to ten years. That was my excuse. Um, but it and if if only if only I'd had the Physically or mentally mental strength to (laughs) yes, well my knees did fall off. So physically clearly it was never gonna work, even if I had a strong mentality. But it it is, and that's why we talk about it all the time about players' mentality. And this is a because these occasions do come along. Yes, the coach will highlight it in in public or in, in private, and then it's down to how how do you actually change that? And you can work on it, but ultimately it is down to the, the players themselves finding a way to get kind of the, the, the flame back, basically, because that's that's what's been, what's died.
3: Oh.
0: Can, 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 can you feel, as a team, can you feel complacency setting in? If you feel as though you're on a good You game? know,
2: there'll be so many games, which certainly it tends to be cup games when you're playing against a team, two or three divisions lower, and you guarantee, you know what the coach is going to say, let's start the game quickly, let's get an early goal because we need to, but you you do go out, in, in your heads, you're thinking, wait a minute, we're Premier League, first division players, we're, we're three divisions. It's You can't help but feel like that. And it is very hard to say, I'm not thinking like that. You pretend that you are, but when you go out there, you, you feel this should be men against boys. This should be fairly comfortable for us. And that's why, again, the coaches try and focus your minds and saying don't feel... It. But it is it's when you've been playing top-level football for such a long time and then suddenly you're playing against a team from League Two, it's natural that you would think, this is going to be a bit easier today and we probably don't have to do what we would do. And that's where teams famously come unstuck. So I think it's it's easy to say, but much more difficult individually and collectively as a team to put it into to, to practice. But yeah, I think it does happen. You can I, I, work with the Everton, having the success at Everton that we did, I, what we did have was players in the dressing room and a coaching setup that actually it never really, complacency was never really allowed to creep in because of the characters that we had, not just good players and good coaches, but actually they just kept the people around them honest and you wanted to do your very best because of these people that were around you. So at Everton at the time that we were successful, it no, that, that wouldn't have been allowed, Ma- mainly from the dressing room and the people in that dressing room themselves.
3: Yeah, self-awareness that, and it's, yeah, uh, if yeah, it's exactly. self-generating, it's really important as well. But just, yeah. just finally, on the other side of that coin change, if, if you're playing in a game against a team who is the overdog, as uh, Rory would like to coin that term, uh, can you tell? Can you tell that they're complacent? Um,
2: that's Again, It's not. I've just thought about, again, the, the pressure. Mm. I'd always maybe say it's not complacent, the pressure that they're under because they're expected to win. They're at home. Right. They're playing against a team that's 10 places lower than them. So you, you'd feel that they will feel the pressure. If that is actually complacency, because this is going to be easy, it's going to be like a, an FA Cup to tie against a second division team. Again, yes, but actually that's what was... So noticeable when you played against the, the very best teams during my career is that when you did go to Old Trafford and played against United and you were 10 places lower than them at best, then you kind of how they still kind of just just took just took you apart. And again, that was to be admired. You knew there was something mentally and physically going on here that whether it came from Alex Ferguson or the players driving themselves, they would not allow that to happen to them, whether it's feeling under pressure or complacency, this is going to be easy. It was completely... There's n- not a game against one of those top-level sides I played that you feel they they clearly turned up, feeling that the game was won before they kicked a ball. They all were absolutely at it, and that is why, ultimately, they were so successful.
3: I, I get the impression that uh, avoiding complacency is the secret to success at every level of football. At the board level, all the way down to the playing level. Or, should I say, at the board level, all the way up to the playing level. at The very elite echelons of the game. Probably the podcast level too, as well, to be fair. <laughs> yes. Mm. We need to try and, try and uh, tap into so, that. So Rory, we'll what, we, won't,
0: you... we, we won't be complacent when we're, when we're, when we're in front of, you know, the, see the whites of the eyes of the audience, will we? We'll all be, all be top of our, top of
3: the morning or whatever it is top of our top <laughs> of our top. yes I'd, I'd work on that bef- before yeah, you see uh, the lights of those eyes so
2: rory did you feel that if you would say because i always feel like you're at the top of your game would you say that steve hugh myself are we going to get an arm around a shoulder kick up the backside are, are any of us guilty of maybe just being too comfortable with this pod
0: <laughs> i think the whole podcast itself is a massive exercise in complacency yes but that's kind of its appeal yeah. Again, self-awareness. That's
3: all that matters.
0: People know what they're getting with this podcast. People understand. They're, no one holds us to a high level. We're not the totally football show. We're not Guardian
3: Football Weekly. We're ba- we're barely even the football ramble. People know that. <laughs> that we, and in that case, we're like Manchester United. We're, we're, we're comfortable with the status quo. Uh, it is time for Nevermind Ori, What a soccer story. This is what Andy tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting day with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved.
2: Now, I have a a trio of John Aldridge stories. John Aldridge, of course, the legendary Liverpool striker. Now, two of them, about carpets and Gerard Houllier, are very much for after dark. So maybe we should steer clear of them. Now, the story that I was going to tell, I just want to see whether this is going to be acceptable. There is a swear word in there, but I can, I can, I can soften it if you'd like me to.
3: And then you'd still have to bleep it out, would you? Well, if you, if you say it's softened, I'll decide afterwards. okay. If and it rhymes much- with
2: if it rhymes with Jane Horrocks, would that be is that something you could leave in, or would you still need to bleep
3: i 'm happy with the the Horrocks yes rhyming
2: okay well john aldridge as i 'm not sure whether he still is the radio city pundit on Liverpool matches. He did this job for a long long time, and there 's a good friend of mine at Sky who used to work with John and has told me numerous stories about him three crackers i 've got and this one. Apparently, he did like to a, have a little a bet on matches, you know, first goal scorer. And this was a, a game at Anfield, and he apparently put his fiver on Steven Gerrard to score the first goal in this Liverpool match. So, Liverpool are a penalty. So, remember, John is actually working, he's, he's on air, he's live, and Steven Gerrard, the penalty taker. So, he goes to the edge of the box and then makes his run, strikes the ball... And as it hits hits the post and bounces away, John Aldridge could be heard heard shouting, bollocks, Because he saw his good return on Steven Girard being the first goal scorer just just evaporate. Now that is why I never bet on any of the football matches that I commentate on, because you could easily because say you were gonna get a massive return. I can't say that his return would be enormous, would you? What what would Gerard be? Eight to one for the first goal scorer? Tens maybe? Yeah. So, I know 50 quid would be a, a few bob and it'd be a few pints, wouldn't it?
3: But apparently, it'd be more was, than Radio City would pay him, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> absolutely. So, he was absolutely gutted when the ball thudded against the post and he made his emotions clear. But you've uh, got to love the Aldridge.
3: I would like to reveal now uh, on this uh, edition of Seppi's Menu that the two other stories about Mm. John Aldridge that uh, Mr. Andy Hinchcliffe has in his back pocket, courtesy of uh, his Sky colleague, Daniel Mann, uh, that um, you will be able to, should you attend the London live show, you will be able to hear those two stories. Both, uh, both, both of them. We've turned, we've turned, we've turned your, your um, inability to swear on this uh, media format, into a possible revenue raiser for us at later down the line. So thanks, Chinch, that's called a tease and we're very grateful for it. Mm. Uh, keep your correspondence coming to menu at gmail.com. Also, buy the merch at tpublic.com and tickets for our London Live Show at myticket.co.uk. That's myticket.co.uk. On both sites, search for setpiece Menu. Even better, get some merch and then wear it to the London Live Show. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. We will see you on Thursday uh, this week, if you're there, thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do we have Brilliant. a dress?
2: Do you have a dress code for Thursday? Uh, we're going in uh, black tie. Black tie. I like, it.
0: I like it. It's, it. It is well, strictly speaking, like all events and every day of life change, it's black tie optional. <laughs> OK, OK.
3: Well, given, given that Rory um, only has about two items of clothing that we've ever seen him in and he just rotates them around, you can just you can just guess it's either going to be the dog walking jacket or the burgundy jumper.
0: No, it won't. It's, I, I think, I think I've, got, well, I've got a nice shirt that I normally say for TV work. I might wear that <laughs> um, or I might wear my um, my jumper that Steve's stolen.
1: What, like this? Yeah, Steve's got
0: his Roma jumper on. I might, I might wear my Cruyff one.
1: Should, well, should we all go North Curve? No, because uh, two of us don't have any yeah, North no, Curve. No, quick, the... quick, you've got time. They're, they're very well, prompt
2: with The North, are North prompt, Curve yeah. fit me? Yeah, get an extra large. Yes, Chinch, you
3: are the whole of the North Curve, but you still will yeah. fit in a North Curve top.
0: Do, we should speak to them about some sort of sponsorship arrangement, because this is very
3: organic. Mm. Chinch, you last time wore super dry, but you don't have to this time around. And look, Chinch, can we just learn
1: the lesson from when Hugh and I saw you last week? Oh, yeah. Where we went somewhere together and yeah. decided in advance that the dress code was smart casual. Yeah. The issue was that Hugh and I turned up smart and you turned up casual. So whoa, 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 whoa. We hold on. on,
3: smart casual. Oh, I was. I was, was a, I was.
2: No, I was rednap casual.
3: Was there a reason that I wasn't invited to this? <laughs> yes, because you can't do smart or casual. Um, oh,
2: <laughs> that's a bit.
0: It's a bit mean.
2: Hugh. Hugh was not smart. Nothing he wore matched. His trousers, they were like Rupert the Bear. I did not want to say anything at the time because I felt a bit bad. But as soon as you walked into a meeting, a high-powered meeting, with a pair of Rupert the Bear trousers that are slightly too short and we can see your ankle bones, they're just going to think, what are these Muppets on? That is
3: the fashion. That
0: is the fashion. What, what is it? Yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, I had this conversation the other day that we, we think of Italians as being incredibly stylish, but really what we mean is that their clothes fit. Whereas in Britain, we seem to have this weird thing of like people are now wandering about in trousers that are too short. Just just wear trousers that fit, lads. It's dead easy. I'm a bit offended that I wasn't invited.